you wanted the best, you've got the best podcast. The hottest, hottest. podcast in the world. In the world. The Chris Voss Show, the preeminent podcast with guests so smart you may experience serious brain bleed. The CEOs, authors, thought leaders, visionaries, and motivators. Get ready, get ready. Strap yourself in. Keep your hands, arms, and legs inside the vehicle at all times because you're about to go on a monster education roller coaster with your brain. Now, here's your host, Chris Voss. Hi, folks. This is Voss here from thechrisvossshow.com. Thechrisvossshow.com. Welcome to the big show, my family and friends. Welcome to all that good stuff. I think we screwed up the uh, the uh, we screwed up the audience soundboard. Wow, we started playing rock. People are going to be like, "Are you a DJ? What's going on over there, Chris?" Well, we finally got it right. Welcome to the show, my family and friends. We've got an amazing gentleman and author on the show. He assures me that he is a both. So we're going to check his references as well. Uh, but uh, in the meantime, we're going to be talking to uh, uh, our audience and asking them to refer the show to your family, friends, and relatives. Go to goodreads.com, Fortress Chris Voss, youtube.com, Fortress Chris Voss, linkedin.com, Fortress Chris Voss. Subscribe to the big LinkedIn newsletter. And also, we're over on TikTok. Give us some help over there. We're trying to be cool with the kids, and uh, they're not sure if they're going to let us uh, get on their lawn or not. Wait. Is so the opposite of that? I don't know how that works. Uh, today, we have an amazing gentleman on the show. And uh, this he has a book that is one of these books that I'm like, I wish somebody would write a book on this because I really would like to know more about what the hell is going on and why it's so expensive to buy a house here and other things. Uh, he's the author of the newest book that just came out, May 2nd, 2023, that's titled Plunder, Private Equities Plan to Pillage America. Brendan Ballou is on the show with us today, and he's going to be talking to us about his amazing work uh, and very thick book with uh, a massive amount of notes. Brendan is a federal prosecutor, and he served as a special counsel for private equity at the U.S. Department of Justice. You may have heard of it. It's a kind of a larger organization there. Uh, he began his legal career in the department's National Security Division, where he advised the White House on counterterrorism policy. He graduated from Columbia University and Stanford Law School. Welcome to the show, Brendan. How are you? I'm well. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for coming. I, I've been really interested in this discussion uh, and all that good stuff. Give us a .com, wherever you want people to find you on the interwebages in the sky. Probably plunderthebook.com or Twitter slash Brendan Ballou. There you go. So, uh, Brendan, uh, what motivated you want to write this book? So I really did not know what private equity was until I was many months into this project. And so I don't think any of your viewers or listeners should feel embarrassed about it because I certainly didn't know. But... I was working at the Justice Department in the antitrust division, and when a, one company wants to buy another, um, they have to submit forms to DOJ and to the FTC. And I was looking at these forms, and all these companies were getting bought by firms that I had never heard of, you know, mm -hmm. Carlyle, KKR, Blackstone. It just seemed like the entire economy was getting bought up by these businesses that seemed like mysteries. Um, so I started researching what they were, um, learned about this idea of about private equity and realized that nobody had really written much for a popular audience about it. And so I tried to find out more. There you go. Here, I always thought private equity was uh, something that my dad had and he wouldn't give it to me when I asked him to loan me some money. Uh, can I give five bucks, dad? He's like, no, it's private equity. Uh, so what is private equity? What are these private equity firms? Give us a, a baseline foundation that we can define on. 
It's it's a great question to ask. So private equity firms take a little bit of their own money, um, some borrow, some investor money, and a whole lot of borrowed money to buy up companies. They then try to make financial or operational uh, changes to those companies with the aim of selling it, you know, for a profit a few years later. So it's a very simple idea, but because of the legal structures that we've got around private equity firms, they have incentives that ultimately can lead to really bad effects often for the companies that they buy. Hmm. And I've been wondering about this for a long time. Like I mentioned in the show, uh, this is one of these books that I, I've been like waiting for someone to write. So thank you very much for covering this. And I, and I think this is a really good expose where the American public needs to understand what's going on. You know, I was just watching before the show, the network scene of, of, uh, of what was it the network the movie you know i'm mm -hmm. get up out of your chairs you know can you just leave me alone with my with my radial tires and my tv shows and you know just let me go through my day but uh, people need to realize this impacts them and i grew up in the era where i came into business and life in 1986 graduating high school of the of the uh, greed is good you know the ivan bioski the michael millikins leverage buyouts um, and this whole thing where uh, I guess America or at least investors, um, on wall street said, yeah, uh, screw main street. Let's just uh, do whatever we want. Uh, so I watched the whole rise of that. And some of this, I, I suppose comes from that. What, what, what is your background? What tell us a little bit more about you? Um, and what, what got you interested? What got, what got you working for the, uh, the department of justice and, and in this field? Yeah, well, I don't have an entrepreneurial bone in my body. So I was mm -hmm. never going to, you know, form a company and become a billionaire or something like that. But <laughs> still I, uh, w I, I ultimately got interested in sort of these broader issues around antitrust and economic justice, really because of my family. Um, oh. My, uh, my mom before um, she had me was a community organizer um, in the Midwest and worked to um, make sure that people who couldn't pay their bills to the utilities wouldn't have their um, heat shut off in the winter. Mm. And so I think I learned from her and from other, you know, from my dad and from others, the importance of making sure that, you know, you have an economy and a set of laws that actually work for ordinary people. Um, so that's what drove me to those issues. And then, you know, I sort of explained on the, the specifics of, of why this topic specifically. But I'll say, you know, I think, you know, like you said, people, um, you know, you kind of came of age where greed is good. I don't think that, you know, this, that private equity is really different from anywhere else. And that, you know, unless we change human nature, people are always going to be greedy. That's not, you know, that's not necessarily a bad thing. The challenge that we've got is that we've got a legal structure in place that allows private equity firms to make an enormous amount of profit, oftentimes at the expense of the very companies they buy, you know, and, you know, not just the companies, but the people that work there and even the customers that they're trying to serve. Yeah. I think, I think a famous depiction of the Ivan Bioski leverage buyout age, Millican age, you know, was in the movie wall street. Everyone's familiar with that. In fact, everyone's always like, no, Ivan Bioski didn't say that, Chris, it was, uh, you know, Michael Douglas. And I'm like, yeah, oh, yeah. you didn't understand what the movie's based on, but um, you know, there's, there's the example where he takes over the airline of, uh, which McCall the big cokehead, um, mm -hmm. and, uh, <laughs> and he, uh, and, and then he, you know, fires the employees and, and all that sort of stuff, you know, corporate rating, uh, was the big thing back then. And I've always wondered, you know, with, with private equity, you know, they'll go buy, I think Sears is a good example mm -hmm. where they'll buy it out and then they'll, they'll just scrape it and, and, uh, and 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 just destroy it and then the bankruptcy and somehow it's like this zombie that stays alive yeah you know, like my question has always been how are these people making money 
And you detail that in the book and all these different uh, ways they can uh, make that happen. Yeah, you know, maybe I can talk uh, through a couple specific examples. So, mm -hmm. you know, when you're talking about retailers, you know, one of the ones that I think about is Shopco, where, which was, you know, if you grew up in the Midwest, was kind of like one step above Walmart, but one step below Target. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it was a great store. Um, it was bought by a private equity firm. And then they did a lot of the tactics that are really, you know, might be obscure to most people, but are very common within the private equity world. So they did something called a sale leaseback where they required mm. Shopco to sell all of the assets, the stores that it owned and lease them back to themselves, you know, which creates a quick hit of cash. But now you essentially have to rent something that you used to own and you can't borrow against it and so forth. So sale leasebacks is one. They extracted transaction and management fees, which are these fees that, you know, you have to pay essentially for the privilege of being owned by the private equity firm. Um, and I think even in this case, they did what's called a dividend recapitalization, where they essentially required um, the company to borrow money in order to pay a dividend to the private equity firm and the other investors. So there are all these tactics that you know work for the private equity firm. It's a way to get money to the private equity firm, um, but don't necessarily work for the company. And at the risk of going on a little long, you know, you, you mentioned how do these companies um, make money even when, or how do these firms make money even when the companies fail? Um, it really goes down to the bankruptcy process. Mm -hmm. So often what'll happen is you'll have a private equity firm push a company into bankruptcy and it owns the company, but it's also the company's largest lender. And what they do with that is by being the owner and the lender, they're able to sell the company from itself to itself. And in the process, push off the pension obligations and other debts that they have mm. to employees and retirees onto these quasi-government agencies. And so it's a world where literally companies that they own can go bankrupt, and yet the private equity firm can succeed. Wow. And so you're basically dumping the debt. I think in Wall Street they did that. Didn't they try and go after the airline punch pension fund and yeah. dump that or pill for it? And but this and this is interesting because like I said, with the network example, people are just sitting around going, Hey, why do I have to care about this? Yet this is going to impact your jobs, it's going to impact uh, your pensions, it can impact other things. And it's interesting to me all the different variations they have for this. You know, you mentioned the dividend recapitalization. Are our pension funds one thing I was watching in an interview with you and, and, and the details in the book was, you know, I, I'm very familiar with Silicon Valley and funds, startup funds, venture capitalists and how they work. And a lot of it is, you know, they're, even if they buy some turd startup software company that flops, you know, we've seen a, a lot of those over the years, they, you know, they're going to make their money off of fees. And so fees that they're, you know, charging or whatever they're charging into the company and then fees that they're charging for their investors. And, and so that buffers, you know, and, and of course spinning out or, or doing new rounds on their stuff. And it almost seems like private equities are, are kind of basically like venture capital, Silicon Valley startup funds, only they buy old companies as opposed to new. Is that a good analogy or am I just smoking the... No, I think I no, I think that's a good good distinction. You know, venture capitals are, they, they, in some ways, they're sort of playing the lottery a lot of times. You know, mm. they want to find that unicorn that's going to explode and so they place a lot of bets, whereas private equity firms tend to buy established companies and then oftentimes try to extract value from, from it. Mm. You know, I think one of the big differences is that, you know, venture capital, at least as I understand it, typically makes an investment, but then it's sort of along for the ride. They may get some board appointment rights, but they're not really in charge. Mm -hmm. Private equity firms, you know, really are running the business. Um, 
But the odd thing about it is, despite the fact that they run the business, they aren't necessarily going to be held legally responsible for their actions. So, you know, one of the stories that I always go to is when Carlisle bought up the nursing home chain HCR Manor Care, Mm -hmm. um, they executed a lot of the tactics that we were just talking about in terms of sale leasebacks and transaction and management fees. Um, Health code violations spike, staffing declines, and at least one resident dies. Um, But when the resident's family sues for wrongful death because she went to the bathroom by herself and there wasn't the nursing staff to take care of her, Carlisle was able to get the case against it dismissed by essentially um, saying, we don't technically own the nursing home chain. We just advise a series of funds whose limited partners through several chains through several several shell companies own the nursing home chain. And that was enough to get the case dismissed. And so to go back to your original question, you know, one of the things that sort of unites venture capital and private equity is that neither is really going to be held responsible for what their companies do. And wow. that misalignment of, of incentives can really hurt people. Definitely. I mean, and it's kind of, I don't know, I, I don't know if I should say anti-American, anti-capitalism, but, you know, it, that's kind of one of the things we have in America. If you injure people you're held liable i mean you're an attorney i mean that's your job no i'm just kidding um (laughs) but you you have a whole chapter in your book about this you know i have i have a sister who is in a um she's in a uh uh care center she has ms she has dementia and one thing we've seen is uh, she's been about five or six throughout her life and one thing we've seen over the years is these you know they've gone from private guys that started them like i you know i start one or something like that um to where they've been bought out by you know all these chains and i don't know if there's a is if there's a uh, venture capital firm behind them but we see the squeezing of care which you see in most leverage buyouts where they try to thin out resources they thin out services they thin out employees and you know they're trying to maximize the return on investment for their for their lbo um and and I've seen the sufferers that she's done, and other and the care uh, has been uh, lowered in there. And you have a good chapter on your book on this as well. Yeah, it's it's really tough because private equity has been extremely active in nursing home chains. Um, mm-hmm. Oftentimes, there's you know cuts to staffing and so forth. Um, one estimate su- suggests um, that private equity ownership of nursing home chains is responsible for an estimated 20,000 premature deaths over a 15-year period. Wow. Um, But it goes back to, I think, something that you were saying at the outset uh, of the question, which is, um, you know, there's, there's, this isn't necessarily an extreme form of capitalism. It's more like a perversion of it. And, you Mm -hmm. know, you can be a Reagan Republican and, you know, be concerned about private equity because it's not people just trying to maximize value. It's people trying to maximize value, value, not necessarily being held responsible for the consequences of their actions. And, you know, just looking at nursing homes specifically, you know, I talked with um, lawyers that, you know, represent families of folks that die in nursing homes. And, you know, we've been looking at the research on this. And one of the things that PE owners will often do is essentially divide up the assets of the nursing home company among many different shell companies. Wow. So there'll be one company for the nursing home property, another for its operations, another for its pharmacy and so forth. And by sort of complicating their ownership structures, it makes it very hard for families to recover when someone, you know, gets a bed sore or is injured or dies. Um, and it means that they that the private equity firm can hold on to the money, even if they're not necessarily, you know, strictly entitled to it. 
Wow, that is crazy. Uh, and and th this is how a lot of things work when it comes to trusts and shell companies and 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 separating assets. You know, I mean, we were you know we we went through that with our attorneys back in the day with our career company. You know, you separate the cars and you make the thing. Hi, folks. Here's Voss here with a little station break. Hope you're enjoying the show so far. We'll resume here in a second. Uh, I'd like to invite you to come to my coaching speaking and training courses website you can also see our new podcast over there at chrisvossleadershipinstitute.com over there you can find all the different stuff that we do for speaking engagements if you'd like to hire me uh training courses that we offer and coaching for leadership management entrepreneurism uh podcasting corporate stuff uh with over 35 years of experience in business and running companies as ceo and be sure to check out chris Voss leadership institute.com now back to the show but it, it's interesting to me that um you know these are these are very large companies and they're being backed by uh what, what sort of firms are backing these i mean who gives these guys people money yeah so you know the the largest private equity firms are backed typically by pension funds mm -hmm. by sovereign wealth funds so you mm -hmm. know funds of you know other countries um sometimes high net worth individuals um, and I think the scale of private equity is often, you know, folks don't really know it. Um, PE firms spent an estimated $1 trillion buying companies last year. So, wow. you know, for comparison, you know, the entire U.S. GDP is about $25 trillion. Yeah. Um, if you looked at, I, I, I might miss up the exact order, but I believe it's KKR, Carlisle, and Blackstone. If you considered them together with their portfolio companies, um, would be the third, fourth, and fifth largest employers in the country after wow. Walmart and Amazon. Wow. Um, so there are these sprawling, enormous institutions, but because they don't sort of plaster their name on the companies that they own, oftentimes you have no idea that you're interacting with a private equity firm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we had David Rubenstein on the show. We'll give a plug out so people can go watch that, his book, How to Invest. Uh, that was a lot of fun. Um, the uh, he, I don't think he knew what to do with me. He's like, this guy is funny and interesting and and crazy and he was like whatever but we had a lot of fun on the show um the you know what's what's curious about me is and i'm sure people are asking or assume like i did how come this doesn't fall over under the department of justice enforcing um monopoly rules you know antitrust rules so it does um the private equity acquisitions are often part of what are called roll-ups so mm. not just buying a single company but um, buying up many companies in a single industry. So, you know, you buy up all of the portable toilets in the region, or you buy up all of the church nonprofit software, or all of the OBGYN clinics in a certain region. Mm -hmm. And potentially, you know, by doing that, you're able to, um, you know, in the positive sense, have, you know, efficiencies of scale, but in the negative sense, you have market power that allows you to, you know, raise prices, lower quality of care, potentially lower wages, and so forth. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I will say that, that, you know, there's been a lot of public speeches lately about, you know, using by department of justice officials about using the antitrust laws to sort of look critically at a lot of these acquisitions. I mean, one of the challenges just speaking honestly is that it's hard for any one institution to take on sort of the whole scope of these antitrust issues, um, mm -hmm. in that, you know, to go back to, you know, a trillion dollars worth of acquisitions. That's a not insubstantial part of the economy. So yeah. while antitrust plays a role here, I think that there are sort of other areas of the law and other sort of institutional actors that can also be be useful here. And maybe we need to update the antitrust laws. I mean, they yeah. were created, what, in the early 1900s? 
Yeah, you know, and there, there, you know, there have been efforts in Congress to update the antitrust laws in the last session. Um, to get a little in the weeds here, there's also something called the Merger Guidelines, which is a, an interpretive document that the government puts out, and that's currently being revised. There you go. You know, uh, there, there. I mean, capitalism is great; it's good to have. But there is such a thing, I believe, and more and more I've been convinced of it is unbridled capitalism. And that, that was the whole reason we put in antitrust laws. There needs to be some constraints and guardrails on capitalism. It can't just be unfettered, where you know we can just go do whatever we want. I mean, that's the reason there's rules against product liability and stuff like that. Um, but you, you mentioned one thing, and and. And I guess one of the big challenges is, of course, we live in kind of a, almost an oligarchy where, you know, with uh, SCOTUS's Citizens United rulings and other things, you can just buy whatever politicians you want. And there's a lot of money of this awash in politicians and, of course, people that uh, run the rail between politics and working for these uh, organizations. Talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah, so I think private equity firms have been almost uniquely successful in advancing their agenda in government. Mm -hmm. um, private equity and investment firms, according to Open Secrets, have spent uh, an estimated $900 million on um, <laughs> the campaigns of, of federal candidates since um, 1990. They have employed really kind of the, the biggest names in government. Um, we're talking multiple secretaries of treasury, state defense, um, a vice president, two former speakers of the House, any number of generals, a CIA director, um, uh, senators and Congress people. Um, and that sort of bench has been really useful in advancing its agenda in Congress. Um, very briefly, one area where I think they've they have been really passionate has been around the carried interest loophole. You know, some of your listeners may be familiar with this idea that, you know, hedge fund and private equity managers often pay, a lower effective tax rate than certainly I as a government employee do. Um, the, uh, the thing about it is, you know, despite repeated efforts um, by, you know, presidents, both Democratic and Republican, to try to rein in the carried interest loophole, um, they have all uniformly failed to such an extent that Last time President Biden tried to propose closing the loophole, not only did that effort fail, but private equity gained a new tax advantage through the course of that debate. So it's an area where I think private equity firms have been really, really successful. There you go. Now, one one thing I've been interested in, and, and the other reason I wanted your book written was I own a mortgage company for twenty years, and I watched the crash of two thousand eight. I was uh, I was. Uh, consulting with banks at the time. And I remember we started getting what were called jingle mail. And I remember being in an office in San Diego going, what's jingle mail? And they go, so many peoples have thrown their keys into the mail and said, F you, uh, mm -hmm. go ahead and foreclose on the home that we get us mail bags that when you jingle them, they're, they're all the keys. I was like, that's extraordinary. And I, I wondered at the time if we were entering an age where, you know, everything, everything we'd done, had had kind of moved from assets and money and, and middle class had moved from investments and in, in different stuff to where their kids were just buying rims basically or you know blowing it at uh, i don't know whatever they blow it on uh you know expensive cars and different things and so i'm like are we going to end up in a position where we're going to become a renter society and one of the big concerns and i think it's concerns everybody's listening is one of the great wealth generators for the middle class has been able to buy a home 
and have it advance in equity and be able to live well with that. I mean, the boomers, uh, that was that was the real big key for them. You have a chapter in your book where you talk about that. And what's been extraordinary is the last few years, we've seen these private equity firms go in and they're just track buying huge amounts of homes, driving up the prices where most people can't afford them. And almost what seems to be like what I predicted earlier, that we might turn into a renter society, only this time it wouldn't be a buyer choice. Yeah, it's really interesting. And I, I should say this this answer, like like all of them, I'm speaking personally and not necessarily on behalf of my employer. But mm-hmm. you know, when we're talking about um, ownership, home ownership, private equity has really played a transformative role here. Um, you know, when you had the Great Recession and you had an enormous, you know, sort of amount of foreclosures and people with underwater mortgages, you know, rather than, you know, sort of having a temporary reprieve on paying principles or principal reduction or anything like that, um, the FHFA um, and Fannie and Freddie ultimately, you know, collected these foreclosed homes and rather than selling them individually so that people could buy them, started selling them in these large tracks where only institutional investors could, especially yeah. private equity firms. And when they did that, um, you know, private equity got in the game and rather than then reselling these homes, they converted them into rental properties. And yeah. so you have large tracks, you know, if you worked in the mortgage industry, you're familiar with this, you know, communities that really um, were devastated by the Great Recession, whether you're talking about, you know, Las Vegas or Tampa, you know, Atlanta and so forth. You have many of the same people living in the same neighborhood, but now they are, um, you know, renters rather than owners, which, you know, takes away the opportunity for building wealth. It's gotten to such a point that home ownership, as I recall, um, is now back to what it was in the 1980s um, for uh, for people in, um, you know, for African-Americans, at least according to one commentator, um, home, home ownership is back down to what it was during the civil rights era. Um, so it's a really transformative trend in sort of the nature of building wealth in America and private equity helped to lead the way. That is amazing. And, and I, you know, one of the companies, I don't know if you're familiar with SFR investments in Las Vegas, you mentioned Las Vegas, but when I first moved back from California, I rented a home from them because I was moving back and they had run an extraordinary game where they, um, with, with the laws of first and second titling in, in Nevada, they all, all the banks had pretty much gone, not been paying the uh, HOA fees. And so they went in and cut a deal with the HOAs and bought track homes for pennies on the dollar just by paying the bankruptcy or the, uh, the HOA fee uh, backlog. And they acquired, I think it was 800 or 1,600 homes. And then they, because of a stipulation in the law, they were able to write off the first and second liens and have them taken off the title or fight to have them taken off the title. And the banks were like, wait, what, what the hell just happened? We have first right of, of title. And it's like, no, the way Nevada law is written, HOA does. And so they fought that for years, but they acquired a ton of homes and the HOAs were like, there's the key. You paid our fee. And the banks were like, what the hell? And then, of course, my neighbors were angry because they're like, man, it's, you know, you're a nice guy, Chris, but, you know, there's a lot all this riffraff now in the neighborhood. Maybe I was the riffraff, but uh, it, it's extraordinary. And so now people can't build wealth. The prices are so high. We need a reset. Um, I mean, I think we would. Uh, and the resets are never good. But, uh, you know, that that affects how families can build wealth. You know, we we talk about how, you know, the new Gen Z is trying to make it in this whole post COVID world. 
And, um, you know, maybe we just end up with an enslaved renter society along with college debt and all the other different things that we have going on, healthcare debt and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. You know, you don't need to be sort of a democratic socialist to be concerned about this. You can be yeah. a traditional conservative and be worried about this. You know, home ownership is down dramatically, especially for younger people. And you look at the surveys and it's not that preferences for home ownership have changed. People still want to be able to own a home, but they say that they can't afford it. Um, it's interesting because, you know, when you look at what it's like to live in these rental properties that private equity firms own, um, you know, it's it's a pretty tough road for a lot of folks, you know, not just about, you know, whether or not they're maintaining properties as they should, or if a renter falls behind sort of exacting, frankly, kind of embarrassing or cruel tactics. I, I mm. was reading about, you know, how one private equity owned owner would um, uh, wrap caution police tape around a home if a person became what, you know, was a few days late on their rent and so forth. Really? Um, but also, you know, just um, that a lot of the money comes not just from the core rent, but from piling on fees that, as you know, you know, you can start adding an awful lot of fees before somebody is going to move, you know, whether it's fees, you know, for things that you might expect, like a pool or something like that. But, you know, special lock fees and things like mm -hmm. that, that people just aren't going to be aware of um, when they first sign their their lease agreement. So I think it is really changing the nature of what it means to to build wealth in the country. Yeah, and changing our ability to build wealth. You know, it, it, ever since the 1980s, when I grew up, it just seems like Main Street's been a, attacked. You can you can blame the liberalism and Reaganism. You know, I'm still waiting for the for my checks for that trickle down work. Um, I don't know about you. Maybe you got your check, uh, but uh, you know, there's there's a point where there's where it's out of control, and I think housing is the biggest concern because people are just trapped. I mean. Uh, they're, they're trapped and, and we're almost, I think you mentioned in another interview I saw talking about just an, a rent extraction market. And since there's such a monopoly of tracks they bought, you, you, don't, you don't have really a choice. It's almost a monopoly. Yeah. You know, I think like the most extreme version of this in housing is mobile homes, um, where uh, <laughs> private equity firms have been buying mobile home parks. And I don't know, you know, if, if this was ever part of your business, but the, you know, the you know mobile homes are very rarely mobile um you know they're they're usually sealed with concrete on the on the property and so only in tornadoes yes exactly um homeowners really pay two rents one is the mortgage that they pay on the property and then they pay what's called a lot rent mm. um and so they're really tough stories about private equity firms buying up um uh, mobile home parks and then increasing the lot rent in some cases i wow. think allegedly even doubling the lot rent and this had a twofold effect because it meant that the the residents had to pay obviously increased lot rents, but it also meant that the homes that they were in, you know, putting, you know, had paid a mortgage on or owned outright, now dramatically lost value because fewer mm. people could buy them. And so it was a way to extract not just the income from residents, but also potentially their wealth. And those things are expensive to move. So you almost have a gun at your head yeah. where you go, you know, I, I have that with my storage units. Like yeah. they love to give me a low cut in. And then over the course of a couple of years, I just got another one that I'm just like, seriously. And I, I sit there and go, okay, I got to pay movers a grand to move this crap. And they just did this. And how much am I paying per month? And, you know, and they, they know that game is going on. In fact, I can name a few companies that do that. Um, and, and some of the uh, big uh, what do I want to call them here? Uh, the rental companies and, and some of these big funds, um, you know, some of them, they're really awful landlords. <laughs> Jared Kushner, excuse me. Um, 
I don't know what that was. Uh, but uh, you read about some of the things that were going on in some of their stuff, and you're just like, holy crap. So what are some what are some things that people can do? What are some things that the government should maybe look at doing? What are the things maybe we should demand more from our politicians to change or improve the business? Because evidently, I imagine there's some good things that, that, that private equities do. Yeah, you know, I always say that, um, you know, as long as people want to build factories and hire employees, there is a role for finance and investment to play. You need somebody that's willing to put up the money and take the risk for a business to succeed. So my goal is not to end private equity or anything like that. It's to make private equity, I always sort of say, sort of less interesting in some sense. You know, the mm -hmm. basic problems that we've got with private equity is they tend to invest with for the short term. Uh, they tend to load up companies with a lot of debt and a lot of fees, and they tend to be, as we've been talking about, insulated from liability um, for their actions. And if you change that, private equity can be made a useful force um, overwhelmingly for society. Mm -hmm. So how do you get there? Um, you can, you know, push change through Congress, although Congress is, you know, it's often very hard to get action on these issues. There's things that can happen at the local and state level, and I actually think mm. that's where a lot of the movement on this is going to be over the next few years. Mm -hmm. um, for instance, requiring that if a company is bought in your state, that they not execute some of the tactics that we've been talking about, oh. about dividend recapitalizations and sale leasebacks and so forth. Um, federal regulators, whether we're talking about the SEC, the Treasury, Federal Reserve, um, Fannie and Freddie, when we're talking about housing, can do the do a lot of these things. So. I think that there are a lot of different levers that people can pull in order to make private equity work for the country. There you go. And of course, your book is the greatest thing that we could have to expose some of the stuff, talk about it, get people educated, get people learn about it and go, hey, what the hell is going on? Um, and and that's, that's the real important part. That's why we do the show. Education is everything. The more you know, as it were. <laughs> Any final thoughts you want to share, Brendan, before we go? Uh, just very briefly, I, you know, as people are learning more about this issue, don't underestimate your own influence. I think mm. that, you know, I say this as a, as a lowly government employee, that the hearing people talk about these issues can empower folks in government, can make people realize, you know, what, how issues affect, you know, people in the real world. Um, so I encourage people to learn more and to make their voice heard. There you go. Make your voice heard. Talk about it more. And, and, you know, I mean, capitalism is a great thing. The weird thing about America is everyone thinks they're going to get rich. It's like that fight club scene. Everyone thinks they're going to be a millionaire and rock stars. Um, and so everyone's like, well, maybe we shouldn't regulate rich people because I'm going to be rich someday, according to the American dream. And, and so we, we kind of have this thing where we, we don't, we're like, Hey, I don't want any rules. So when I get there, I can do whatever, you know, Elon Musk is doing whatever that is this week. I'm not sure he knows either. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, we're just kidding. Elon don't sue us. Um, so there you go. Uh, so fun is fun. Uh, give us a.com wherever you want people, Brendan, to find you on the interwebs, uh, plunder the book.com and, um, Brendan twitter.com slash Brendan Ballou. And you can uh, look up the book anywhere books are sold. There you go, guys. Educate yourself on what's going on because this affects everyone's bottom line. Your future, your pension plans, your retirement, money you're making. Uh, you know, uh, Main Street seems to be the one thing that needs to recover in all of this. Thank you very much, Brendan, for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much for the time. There you go. Thanks, my for tuning in. Go to goodreads.com, Fortress Chris Voss, youtube.com, Fortress Chris Voss, linkedin.com, Fortress Chris Voss, and uh, help us out on TikTok. Give us a like over there. We're trying to be cool. It's not working, of course. Thanks for tuning in. Be good to each other. Stay safe. We'll see you guys next time.